So again, we are in Paul's first letter to young Timothy. 1 Timothy is one of three books that are part of what we call the pastoral epistles. 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus uh, are those three pastoral epistles. They're three letters written by Paul, two to Timothy, one to Titus, where Paul is concerned about these young pastors and how they are caring for their local churches. He wants to equip them in leadership. He wants to encourage them to guard the truth of the gospel, and he wants to exhort them to equip their churches. Now, the primary themes in really all of these letters is first and foremost to protect sound doctrine, to guard against false teaching. And then Paul also reinforces the importance of gathering together and why we gather together He explains the qualifications for church leadership. He explains what the role of a a pastor, an elder, and a deacon is. And he gives instructions for each of those offices within the church. And then he gets into the church's social responsibilities in the communities that they exist in. And then finally, he touches on the appropriate understanding of material possessions. So, let's jump right in. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul introduces himself. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. To Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, our Father, our Jesus and Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you've studied any of Paul's letters, you know that Paul starts off with a very similar introduction, a very similar greeting. In 13 of Paul's letters, nine of those, he identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. And he writes that he is an apostle by either call, commission, command, or will of God. And now here in 1 Timothy verse 1, he says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So you see this chain of authority. Paul is just not a man sharing his own personal views on life and human existence. He says, I am a a messenger The word apostle comes from the word envoy or one who is sent. It was a a word that was used for cargo ships that were sent with cargo. And Paul's cargo is not his own. It is the message of the gospel which he received from Jesus Christ. There's some churches today, and I think this has been going on since Paul preached the truth of the gospel, but there's some churches today that distance themselves from the teachings of Paul. They'll say, oh yeah, we'll follow the teachings of Jesus, but Paul, you know, in our, in our deep understanding and learning, we don't think Paul, Paul's teachings need to be adhered to, which is really convenient when you want to remain accessible to the broader culture, isn't it? If you can just write off the teachings of Paul, then you don't have to preach on some of the unpopular worldviews today. But Scripture does not give us any room for that. 
the teachings of the apostles carry the same weight and the same authority as the teachings of Jesus because they are the teachings of Jesus. Paul didn't add to the teachings of Jesus. He recited what he had heard from Jesus. So Paul says, I'm an apostle, not by man, not because I've been elected, not because I volunteered, not because I'm self-appointed, not because I'm board, board appointed, I didn't apply for this job, I have been called by Christ himself. And we see the authority behind that. And we learn who he is writing to. He's writing to a man by the name of Timothy. What do we know about Timothy? One, he was relatively young because Paul encourages him not to be despised because of his youth. Many commentators believe that he was probably in his mid-30s when he received this letter from Paul. We also get the impression that Timothy was probably a little timid Throughout Paul's letters, he is encouraging Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Do not be ashamed of me, his prisoner. He says, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of what? Power and love and a sound mind. Paul says, you, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So frequently, Paul is exhorting him to be bold, to have courage, to understand that God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. And we're going to see why Timothy may have been a little bit timid. We also see in 1 Timothy 5 that Timothy was frequently ill. He was kind of sickly. So here you have this young man who is timid and often sick, and he has an amazing call on his life. As Jeff shared in that passage he read, God doesn't call those who are qualified. He qualifies those he calls. And you may be sitting here this morning thinking, how in the world can I be used of God you know, I, I hate speaking in front of people. I just, I'm not outgoing. Maybe I, I'm an introvert. I, I just can't be used by God. No, you're the perfect person to be used by God. It doesn't matter what your giftings are or your perceived abilities are. God equips those he calls. It's his work, not our own. And we see that in the life of Timothy. I'm encouraged by this because here we have this young, frequently ill, timid man, all that to say he was human. He was a human being. He was ordinary. He was an ordinary person with ordinary issues and an extraordinary calling on his life. Now, as I was studying this and kind of learning about who Timothy was, I realized that he probably wouldn't make it through the first round of the interview process at many churches today probably wouldn't be charismatic enough. He probably wouldn't be bold enough. He probably wouldn't carry the weight of a personality of someone that many churches today think can lead a church. But Paul felt differently because what does God say to Samuel as Samuel is looking to choose a king to replace Saul because the people chose a king that looked like a king, but he didn't have the heart of a king. 
So Samuel goes to a man's home, and the man brings the son, his sons before him, and Samuel makes the same mistake. He picks the son that looks like a king, that's tall, that's built, and he's like, that guy is king material. And what does the Lord say to Samuel? No, that's not the one I've chosen. Man looks at the outward appearance, but I look at the heart. And Paul knew the heart of Timothy, that, Paul, that Timothy was faithful to the Lord first and foremost. And that's what, that's what matters. Paul says, he, Timothy, my true son, that word true means genuine. It would be the word that they would use for a biological son. Now, we know that Timothy wasn't Paul's biological son, but in Paul's eyes, he absolutely was because they were cut from the same cloth. They both had a love and affection for Jesus and his gospel. We know that Timothy's father was Greek, and that his mother was a Jew, and that the Jews would have viewed him as an illegitimate Jew or a second-class citizen. So that was going against him. But again, Paul knew the heart of Timothy. Paul had led Timothy to Christ along with Timothy's mother and grandmother, and he watched over many years as Timothy faithfully followed the teachings of Jesus and Paul's example. And when Paul finally calls Timothy to, to pastor this, these churches in Ephesus, he does it because he knows that Timothy is a true son in the faith. So he communicates not only to Timothy here, but to everyone who will read this letter, because this isn't a, just a private letter to Timothy. This would be a, a letter that was passed around not only the churches in, in Ephesus, but all of the churches, and eventually it would come into the canon of Scripture, and here we are reading Timothy's letter today. And in this letter, Paul communicates the qualifications of young Timothy and the authority of young Timothy. Look at verse 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. You might want to read, underline those three words. No other doctrine. Nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than, than godly edification which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and the insubordinate, 
for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. So let's unpack that a little bit. Paul says, I urged you to what? To remain in Ephesus. Why might someone urge someone else to remain? Because they want to leave. And there, I wonder here if what was happening in the churches in Ephesus was weighing heavily on young Timothy to the point where he wanted to move on. He wanted to go. And Paul said, I urged you to remain. I know we've, we've mentioned this as we've been studying Paul's letter in First and Second Thessalonians, but in modern day America, where there are churches on every corner and in a culture that says, have it your way, church migration, or we can call it church hopping, is far too common where something happens where I, I don't like it, I've been offended, or this church offers something more. I know I've been here for six months, but I'm going to move over here and find just the perfect balance of everything I want. I want to have it my way. I want to encourage you. Relational collateral is a wonderful thing. Do you know what I mean by that? Getting to know one another. Knowing others and being known by others. That is something that can only happen over time. The longer you spend with others, the more they get to know you and the more you get to know them. And that is a good thing when it comes to building up one another. And far too often today, the church is just migrating from one fellowship to the next, never really planting roots. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't call people to different places, not at all. But there is something wonderful about growing up with one another. And it takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of long-suffering and selflessness and forgiveness and tough conversations and prayer. It takes work because we are all broken people. But I know from experience that work is worth it. I would... I wouldn't trade the relationships I have here at Central that we've developed over 20 years plus. I wouldn't trade them for anything. And it hasn't been easy, but it's been worth it. And that's what Paul says. Stay. Stay in Ephesus. Remain there. And charge some that they teach what? No other doctrine. See, this is how Paul's going to start his first letter, and it's how he's going to close his first letter. Protect the message of the gospel. That's his primary concern in all of his pastoral epistles. Protecting the truth, guarding sound teaching and doctrine, and confronting false teachers and false teachings. That seems like an odd responsibility for a young, timid, sick man. But again, God knows what he's doing. It doesn't come across as a confrontational man. 
But again, God equips those he calls. And Paul says, stand against false teaching. Notice how exclusive Paul's statement is. No other doctrine. Meaning, truth isn't a pick-your-own-adventure kind of thing. It isn't a have-it-your-way kind of thing. It isn't, okay, truth is either door one, two, or three. You pick whichever door, and that can be your truth. Despite what our culture tries to pass off as true today, have you noticed, especially in this postmodern age, the only objective truth about the nature of God and the identity of man is there is no objective truth. The only thing that our culture truly believes to be true is that there's nothing really true. Your truth is whatever you make it. And Paul says there is truth when it comes to God. And there is truth when it comes to his nature and his plan for salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. And then there is everything else. That's pretty narrow, isn't it? Early Christians were called followers of the way. And the word the way meant a road, a path. And often on these paths were ruts in the ground. And those ruts were dug by wagons. And those wagons would ride in those ruts. And to ride outside of those ruts would make for a really rough ride. But in that rut would be relatively smooth sailing, as smooth as you could be in a wagon. But there was one rut, there's one way, there's one path to life. But we live in a time, and we need to understand the times that we live in, because we are sharing our faith in these times. Everybody has their own truth. We live in an era where it's all about expressive individualism. The highest virtue anybody can have is what? Tolerance. Tolerance for any worldview, any idea, except the one that proclaims there is one truth and one path to life, and it exists outside of our feelings. And we are created by God and we find meaning and purpose in this life as we conform to His truth. So truth doesn't exist in here. It exists with the one who created us. And we find freedom and purpose and life when we conform to His truth. That is not popular today. Instead, we're more concerned about being true to ourselves. Our inner truth becomes our source of truth. Authenticity to our inner feelings becomes far more important than the adherence to any transcendent truth. Have you noticed that in conversations with people that don't know Christ? That may be what you believe, but I believe this. And then there's some kind of weird view that both of you can be right at the same time. Truth is narrow. You are all sitting inside of a church on 28th Avenue in Glendale. You are not in San Diego. You are not in your home. You are not in the parking lot. You are right here. Truth is narrow. 
you don't get to define what truth is just because of the way you feel. And that's why we live in a time where sometimes it just feels like the twilight zone. You're like, are you, you hear, again, laws that are passed and things that are celebrated, and you're like, what is going on? Like, have, have we just gone a little bit insane? But the roots of all of this is this idea that we can find our own truth apart from the one who created all things. And Paul says there is no other doctrine. As one author put it, the modern self in our day and age is not accountable to the theologians who teach the word of God and how to conform oneself to God, but to the therapists who counsel how to be true to oneself. Now, don't get me wrong, there are some amazing Christ-centered Christian therapists, but as soon as we start talking about you need to be true to yourself and not true to the word of God, they are leading their patients down a path of hopelessness and bondage and destruction. Listen to what Jesus taught. Matthew 7, 13, enter by the what? The narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. Remember, truth is narrow, and then there is everything else. And that way is broad. It's infinite, if you will. I am 42, I think. I'm 42 years old. I'm not 43. I'm not 41. I'm not 1,000. I'm not 1,700,000. I mean, if you can talk about all the numbers I'm not, that's an infinite amount of numbers. There is one gospel, one way to be made right with the God who created us, and then the enemy loves everything else. The enemy doesn't care what you believe as long as what you believe is not true. He is happy to have you go down any path to find fulfillment as long as it isn't the true path. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction and there are many who go by it. That should be heartbreaking. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life and there are few who find it. It's not difficult because it's hidden somewhere. It's difficult because we have a flesh that wants to be searched and a flesh that rebels against the good plans and purposes of God. We naturally bend away from God's goodness. Again, the enemy doesn't care where you search for wisdom and where you search for truth and where you search for life as long as you don't seek it from the giver of life. Because he knows every other path is destruction. We were reminded last Wednesday in 2 Kings chapter 21 about the abominations that Israel fell into. They fell into the same secular pagan worship that the surrounding nations did. 
And those, those acts of worship, they were witchcraft and soothsaying and the worship of the sun and the moon and the stars. But really, we look at that and we're like, oh, that's dark and evil. But what is that? It is an attempt to gain wisdom apart from God. Whether it's looking at the stars in the sky or cloud formations or the flight path of birds or your modern-day secular scholar, or whatever it may be, if we're looking for truth apart from the one who is the source of truth, we will find ourselves in bondage. Listen to Jesus' warning in Matthew seven fifteen: Beware of false prophets, false teachers, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every time that does Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. I want to think about this for a moment. If you came over to our house and you said, oh, those are nice orange trees you have out there. And I said, yeah, they're, they're amazing. They are, they are fantastic. And you ask, oh, wow, you get good oranges from them? And I'm like, no. Actually, the oranges that come from them are terrible. They're horrible. They're, they're, they don't have any flavor. They're rotten. But man, that's a great tree. Is it? <laughs> so why do we think that way? Why do we take advice from a secular philosopher who was a proponent for pedophilia? Why do we take Advice from secular philosophers who couldn't make their marriages work. A lot of the worldview that exists today, this idea of, of truth is within you, came from a man who gave up his three children for adoption just because they were inconvenient. Look at the fruit of those you follow. Let me give you some advice. If you're here this morning and you're looking, you are a genuine seeker of truth. Look for someone who lives a life that you admire. Now, let me go a little bit deeper than that. Not just someone who has money and you kind of have to decide, okay, why do I admire what I admire? But look for someone who has a richness and a fullness in their life. And if you don't know anyone, I can point you to many families within our fellowship. Healthy marriages, not perfect marriages, but marriages where they enjoy being around one another, and they're doing their best to raise their kids, and they're honorable men and women, and they would be the first to say it's because they, well, because Jesus found them, and they've been transformed. Look at the fruit. If the fruit of your worldview causes you to sacrifice the lives of the innocent, maybe you need to examine your worldview. 
See, a follower of Jesus cannot buy into this subjective truth, a choose-your-own-adventure kind of truth, because Jesus is the truth. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I came to bear witness to the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. See, that's the big lie of the enemy. Oh man, Christianity following Jesus, that's about not having any fun. That's about being controlled. That's about being manipulated. I didn't know freedom until I found Christ. My worldview brought me into bondage and addiction that I could not escape on my own. And it wasn't until I found Christ that I was truly set free. All these other pseudo-truths, they lead to bondage and destruction. So now you understand Paul's charge to Timothy. Now you understand why it was so important. Timothy, oppose false teaching, oppose false worldviews. In 1 Timothy 6.20, when Paul closes his letter, he reminds him, Oh, Timothy, exclamation mark. Guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Guard the word. John Stott points out it wasn't just the Ephesians that struggled with sound teaching. The Galatians had deserted the grace of grace of Christ for a different gospel, and the Corinthians were being led astray to a different Jesus and a different spirit and a different gospel from those they had first received. This is a a war on truth that has been going on since the beginning, since the serpent in the garden said, did God really say? God's holding out on you. Yeah, God's way is one way of doing it, but let me give you a whole host of others. You could be like a God. False teaching, the Greek is literally different. Different teaching. Any teaching other than Christ's. So what were some of these false teachings that were present in Timothy's day? Look at verse 4 again. He says, give heed, nor give heed to fables. Some of your translations might say myths and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. See, in Timothy's time, these fables and these myths and these endless genealogies were uh, extremely common. The endless genealogies probably referred to those genealogies in Genesis that trace the descent of some of the grandfathers of the faith, some of the pedigrees of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and some rabbis, they would take sections of the Old Testament and they would simply rewrite it. We have uh, some books from rabbis who took the Old Testament and thought it clever to just completely rewrite it in their own words, and their own ideas. We have the book of Jubilees. We have the biblical antiquities of, of Philip. Other rabbis were taking pieces of scripture and pulling out tr- truths that, guess what, no one else had experienced. 
no one else had understood. They created theories and belief systems that could only be understood by those who were intellectually enlightened. Does that sound familiar? These fables and endless genealogies had become their primary focus because there's a little bit of pride in knowing something that someone else doesn't know. Now, don't get me wrong. As we study God's word, he is opening our eyes to all kinds of new things. And the deeper we go, the deeper our understanding of him is. And that's a wonderful thing. But there's something else that exists in the world today. Where our study and our belief system and our theories they become a distraction. They cause disputes. They cause controversies. It's just speculation. And, and then debates arise and confusion arise. And you know what's not happen, happening? Godly edification. Rather than building up the church, it tears it apart. That is not sound doctrine. The fruit of false teaching is disputes, division, confusion, and chaos. So what is the fruit of sound teaching? Look at verse 5. Now the purpose of the commandments is what? Love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. Good, sound doctrine, the truth, the narrow way, it produces, first and foremost, love from a pure heart. What's a pure heart? None of us know because we don't have one. But no, God says, no, it's possible to love from a pure heart. Think about this for a moment. A pure heart is sharing the heart and mind of God. And loving from a pure heart is not loving you because of what you can do for me. It's loving you because of what Christ has done in me. It's not contingent on anything you do. There's no strings attached. I love you not because of who you are, but because of what Christ has done in me. There's no responsibility on the one who is receiving the love's part. That's godly love. God doesn't love us because we're lovable. He loves us because He, in fact, is love. And it's not with any strings attached. And He wants to cultivate that same love in us. So when we hear sound Bible teaching, when we study the Word for ourselves, when we beg for the Spirit of God to do that work in us, that's what it produces. A love. That is selfless, a love that is Christ-like. That's love from a pure heart. I want that. And it can only be found here. Why would we give this up to fit into a, a broader culture, to make it more palatable for those around us when only this transforms our hearts? Only God's living word. And then a good conscience. A good conscience means you are convinced that what you believe comes from God and it passes the test of faith. It means you don't have to do gymnastics or play some form of twister to reach around and get God's word to say what you want it to say. 
Do you understand what I'm saying? There's so many people that twist God's word into so many different uh, shapes and, and forms that it begins to look anything but, anything but like God's word. Because they have a worldview that they're trying to fit into scripture instead of getting their worldview from God's word. A good conscience says, God, I just want to know your truth hard stop. Even if it's uncomfortable, even if it means that you're going to change areas of my life, even if it's not popular in the world that I live in today, I just want to know your truth. That's a healthy place to be because that's a prayer God honors. I've watched him respond to that prayer in mighty ways in people's lives and my own. A good conscience. God, I just want to know what is true regardless of the cost. And then a sincere faith. That means we hold fast to the promises of God. I mean, there's still room for doubt. There's room for uncertainty, but ultimately we take those concerns to God himself. Love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. When the truth of God's word is taught, and it's received, and it lands on good soil, that's the fruit it bears. Look at verse 6. So protect the gospel. Protect the teachings of Jesus Christ. Protect His word. And it will bear fruit. It will produce love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from a sincere faith. But in verse 6, from which some have strayed. They've turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Some have wandered, Paul says, from the narrow way. Some are no longer on that road and they're spending their time discussing meaningless and empty things. Their focus is no longer on the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. They're off in left field debating and talking about something that has very little bearing on seeing people come to know Christ. Now, I, I watched a recent interview with a, a one-time well-known Author and pastor Rob Bell. Are any of you familiar with that name? Probably better off that way. I was going to play a clip for you, and then I didn't want you to suffer through that. So I thought I'd just give you a summary. But he was well-known, especially in my generation growing up. He was kind of a, a hip, young pastor who um, seemed to be an intellectual, if you will. But what he taught often undermined the authority of God's word. And I was just curious where he was at now, because remember, Jesus said a good, fruit, a good tree can't bear bad fruit, and will know false teachers by their fruit. So I was just curious to see where he was now, because it was a recent interview. And the one doing the interview seemed genuine. Uh, he asked him, when you say, because Rob Bell would still claim to have a relationship with Christ. He said, when you say that you have a relationship with the Christ, what do you mean? Well, that's a door swung wide open, isn't it? 
But this was his response. The Christ comes to show us who we are. The idea in church world today is that it's all about Jesus. No, it's not. That's a ridiculous statement. Jesus was all about humans being humans. He himself would say, that's the dumbest thing ever. And then he went into critiquing praise songs, singing to Jesus, worshiping Jesus. And he said that if he were here, and he was in the midst of these services where people were worshiping him, that would be very awkward for him. He would discourage people from singing to him, and he would say, I in my divinity have come to speak to you in your divinity. The only guru that can help you, he said, is the guru that reminds you you don't need a guru. Where did he come up with this? This is a worldview of his own making. And the interviewer's mind was blown. What an intellectual. But what Rob Bell shared was empty, it was meaningless, and it was powerless. It had no ability to transform lives, but it did scratch some itching ears. False teachers wanted to be teachers of the law. They desired to be viewed as influential to be leaders that people could go to, spiritual guides. He's still in this place where he's doing interviews and he desires to be a spiritual guy. I would tell him, just go do you. Close your mouth. <laughs> See, the problem with these false teachers, Paul says, is they want to be teachers of the law, but they don't have any clue what they're talking about. They like to talk about the law, but they didn't understand it. Paul writes in verse 8, but we know that the law is good if it's used lawfully. It's a great tool if you use it for the right purpose, the point to point the unrighteous to their need for a Savior. The law is good, but the gospel is glorious. The law is good when it's used to point people to their great need for a Savior, and His name is Jesus. But these teachers, how did they use the law? They used the law to prove that they, in fact, were righteous, that they were carefully adhering to the law. Think about the rich young ruler who came up to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's the truth? And Jesus said, well, you know the commandments, and He went through the commandments, and the rich young ruler said, teacher, I do, and I've kept them all from my youth. He looked at the law, and he used the law to justify himself. And Jesus, it says, showed him love. And he said, well, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor and follow me. And he was shaken by those words. Because we're told that he had much property, and he went away grieving. Now, was Jesus saying that we have to sell everything to inherit eternal life? No, this man was living by the law, 
and using the law as a tool to prove his righteousness. And Jesus, in love, used that same law to point out to him he was greedy and unloving. And it doesn't matter who you are, if you live by the law, there is always one thing you're lacking, if not 20 things you're lacking. The law is not a tool to make one righteous. It is to show our unrighteousness, and it is good in that way. The law is good because it points us to the gospel, which is glorious. We don't need a guru who tells us we don't need a guru. We need God to resurrect us with the same power that he resurrected Jesus Christ. That's what we need. Power. Not these silly ideas that come from the heart of man. I want to hear what the creator of the universe has to say. Look at verse 9. Knowing this, that the law is made for a righteous person. Oh, excuse me, the... Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and the insubordinate, for the ungodly, for the sinners, for the unholy and the profane. And he goes on and on and he lists what unholy and, unpro- and profane looks like, meaning the law is for sinners. Those on the outside, right? Not us. No, the law is for us. Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous, I came to call the sinners to repentance. He wasn't saying, there are some who are righteous and I'm not here to call them, they're already good to go. No, he's saying, nobody is righteous. And I came to call sinners to repentance. I didn't come here to say, hey, you guys are doing a great job, keep it up. But I came to show you that you cannot fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, but I have and I will and I will still die for you I didn't come Jesus said to heal those who are already well I came for the sick and the law reveals our sickness how many of you have ever lied you're a sinner we are liars Jesus says, if you hate someone in your heart, you have committed murder. So we're murderers. And we're all thieves because I know you stole that paper clip from the office the other day. (laughs) So we are liars, murderers, and thieves. And the law exposes that. And that's what Paul is saying. These false teachers, they don't, they use the word, but they use it in really twisted ways. They're false teachers. They want to be seen as guides, but they don't even know God. Verse 12, and I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry because Paul was qualified. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, when did Christ call Paul? When he was a blasphemer persecuting the church. A persecutor, he says, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is the narrow road. 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul says, I got saved. Jesus found me a persecutor of the church, a blasphemer, and he still saved me so that people would look at me as an example and say, man, if he saved Paul, he can certainly save me. Don't ever believe for a second, uh, God doesn't know what I've done. He can't accept me. He won't accept me. That's a, that's a lie. Paul writes, now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he says in verse 18, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Don't forget what God has said when you're in the dark. Don't forget what God has said in the light when you find yourself in the darkness. Fight the good fight. Wage the good warfare. What is that war? To protect the gospel. To protect God's word. To not be tempted by all the, the worldly, carnal, broken ideas about scripture. Don't water it down. Don't make it more palatable. Just set it loose. I think that it's Spurgeon saying, how do you defend a lion in a cage? You don't have to defend it. You just open the gate and let it free. And that's what we're called to do with the word of God. Fight the good fight. Having faith and a good conscience which some having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hamanaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Fight the good fight. Stand for what is true. Live out what is true. Let's pray. I ask you to just bow your